Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Or very much enjoying our current sermon series through the letter of 1 John. And we'll be back to that next Sunday, Lord willing. Um, I want to spend some time today very much in the same type of text that we've been in in 1 John by looking at God's love at work through us who belong to Him for those outside the church. And so before we look to Jesus' words here in Luke 10, let me just read our passage in 1 John that we're in and use that as a way to set the table. 1 John 4, 7-10. through 10. You just heard it read in the bumper. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We who are saved by God, who are redeemed by Christ, who belong to God, are eternally loved by God. This is what Scripture tells us. Scripture says that He has loved us unconditionally before we were even born. God has not just proclaimed His love for us, He has shown it to us in the most amazing and sacrificial way through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What this means is that the redeemed Christian is so loved by God that we are full and complete in His love. Lacking nothing good, having gained everything we need in Christ. The Apostle John is clear to make the additional point that those who do not know God are still not trusting their lives to Christ, still guilty in their sin, don't know true love. They don't know God who is love, but only a counterfeit. If you're just joining us today, I can't encourage you enough to take time this week and jump on our website and go back to last week's audio from the sermon and listen to that teaching, the foundational understanding of the origin of love according to Scripture. This is such an instrumental passage in Holy Scripture that we were in last Sunday and will not only be good for your processing of what we're going to do today, but in preparing you for where we'll be next week. Because God is love, and because we know God through Christ, atonement in our place, we know love. And we can now love others the way that God has modeled and commanded us to in His Word. Sacrificially, so well described in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4-7, when Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 
As we talked about last week, we simply will not love others this way, this selfless, sacrificial way, without God's love full and at work in our lives. Our flesh is just too selfish. But praise God for His work in us. His empowering us to love others in such a wonderfully sacrificial way, a selfless way, in a way that glorifies Him, in a way that puts His gospel on display. Now, with that foundation under our feet, look to Jesus' teaching on what God's love looks like when it's at work in and through us for those especially outside the church. Luke 10, 25-37, A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. God's great commandment for us is clear. The great commandment to love God above all else. And to love others sacrificially. Next week, we'll be back to 1 John chapter 4, and we'll study what God's love at work in us looks like for one another, very specifically. It has a very specific and important task, how we love one another, those in the church, those a part of the redeemed body of Christ. But today, let us consider, what does God's love at work in us look like for those outside the church, for the others in our lives. To do this, we can just stop and consider what is Jesus teaching here in this parable? The Good Samaritan. As he reveals what Scripture will affirm all over the place as to the different kinds of people that are our neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Four main Answers to that that I see in Holy Scripture. 
that I want to focus on today. One, they are those who are against you, your enemy, the ones who are actively persecuting you or opposing you. They are also those who are different than you. Kind of people you don't relate to. Kind of people you don't understand. They are also those who are dead in sin. Secular sinners. People opposed to God. Denying Christ. Guilty in their sin. And fourth, they are those who are in need. This is the poor. The oppressed. The addicted. The widow. The orphan. And the wealthy. If we're honest, though, we like to pick our neighbors, don't we? Right? When, you, when you're evaluating, considering moving into a home, you don't just look at that house. You look around at the neighborhood. Who are these people I'm going to live with? What do their houses look like? What kind of noise do I hear in this place? How do they keep their houses? If you're like me, you go so far to just sit in the backyard for a while and just listen. Why? Because I can't stand yappy dogs. And if my neighbor has 13 yappy dogs, this is not going to work. You might look over the fence. How does the, my neighbor keep their house? Is this a wreck? Is this a mess? Right? What is, what, what is that? We like to pick our neighbors. We like our neighbors to be a certain way. Right? Or am I the only one? Not only do we like to pick our neighbors, but there's another side of that. We like to complain about our neighbors too, don't we? Why is that? Because of our fleshly desire to have it our way. We like our world to be the way we like it. It's, it's based out of, that complaining is based out of a fleshly, selfish love where we are often critical instead of sacrificial towards our neighbors. This is why one must be filled and transformed by God's love in Christ. Because only when we're full of God's amazing love, sacrificial love for us, then are we readied, rightly transformed, to love others, the others in our lives, the way that God has commanded us to. So I want to look at these different kinds of neighbors, one by one, what Scripture has to say about them. And the first one is the neighbor who is against you. The person who is your enemy. Jesus is clear to teach that we are to love our enemy. Matthew 5, 43 and 44, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is going to teach us that our enemy is our neighbor. In other words, your neighbors are not just the people you like or get along with. They're often people you are actively against or they're against you. Paul will say to the Romans, Romans 12, 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Oh, how mad the flesh gets at people who are 
persecuting us and quick to rile up with words that are not right. The biblical principle is that Christians who are walking in Christ will love those who are not deserving love. Our enemies are those who come against us, but we are to love them with a love that points them to God. That's the purpose for our days. This is what the Samaritan did for the Jewish man who was robbed and beaten. Why Jesus framed this illustration the way he did. To really appreciate it, though, you have to do a little business with the history of the Samaritans and the Jews. Because they were very much against each other in their day. They lived very segregated lives and had much disdain for each other. After the Assyrians captured Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, around 722 B.C., they deported the Israelites of substance, and the Assyrians settled the land with foreigners, who then intermarried with the surviving Israelites, and those adhered to some form of their ancient religion. After the exile was over, Jews returning to their homeland then viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds. Those whose value was grossly tainted. Various unacceptable realities that had come to be. Ethnic, racial, religious realities that made the Jews feel great disdain for the Samaritans. In their opinion, the Samaritans were ceremonially unclean. They were racially impure. They were religiously heretical. And therefore, they were to be avoided at all cost. Segregation was very real in the streets. We see even that response by the Samaritan woman who is shocked that a Jewish rabbi would sit at the well and talk to her. How is this even happening? She's shocked. Because that didn't happen. And in return, the Samaritans grew to hate the Jews just the same. They were enemies. So when Jesus teaches that love for your neighbor and what, what that looks like, he's specific to show that God's love in us causes us to truly and actively love our political, cultural, and religious enemies. So the ones you thought you would, the ones we thought would stop and show love to this broken, beaten man, the Levite, the priest, are the ones who skipped over him. They looked down at him. They didn't want to be bothered with him. No, it was, in all regards, the one who was considered a hated enemy who stopped and showed great sacrificial love to this man. Jesus really drives his point home in his teaching in Luke 6, 32-35. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. 
He's saying, how is our testimony of those of us who are in Christ, how is it different than just the way secular man lives their lives in all normal ways? He says, love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus is saying anyone can love that which is lovely. Those who are easy to love, those who are nice back to us, are easy to love. But it's extremely difficult to love those who are unlovely, who, who are coming at us, who are against us. To love those who are ungrateful, even love those who are evil. Church, you and I will not love these kinds of people in our own strength. Loving our enemies is only possible. It's only genuine if it is out of the overflow of life in Christ. Loving others is a supernatural way of life. It's God-empowered. And this is why it points others to the gospel in a way that's unique. Paul said, Romans 12, 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Church, loving others, love for your enemy, the way God is the way that God loved us when we were his enemies. Right? First John 4:19 is a passage we're going to see in our coming stretch of, of work through that book. And it says, We love. Because He first loved us. This is why love for others is an outgrowth of a heart that is taken hold of by the gospel and is being transformed as you grow your affections for God by His Spirit, Word, and community. He's transforming us. He's maturing us. He's sanctifying us. The Bible says, the only vengeance that Christians can inflict on others is the red-hot coals of love. What does that even mean? What does it mean for by doing so you will heat burning coals on his head? Well, the place that that's being quoted from is helpful. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heat burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The, the coals on the head is a cultural reference to a ritual that was popular in those days, especially from the region of Egypt, in which a person showed or modeled, testified repentance by carrying a pan of hot burning coals on their head. So when we respond then with love and not hate, the point is this can cause someone to repent of their actions. Can do that. And so love is the antidote for hate. Especially the love of God at work through us. When the Christian loves his enemy, that enemy is either melted to repentance or hardened unto God's perfect judgment for them. And understand, it's not up to us how they respond. It's up to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We simply are called to let God's love move through us to love others sacrificially.
Another way we are called to love the others in our lives is to love those who are different than us. We've talked about those who are against us. What about just those who are different from us? Well, James speaks to this well in James 2, 1. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Church, we must see that our tendency in our flesh is to sinfully show favoritism or partiality to others, but that this is sin. It's not in line with our faith in Christ or our testimony of God and His people. James digs in further. He gives an example of partiality at work. James 2, 2-4. through For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Is this not a picture, though, of the way common man in our culture works? How we treat people. We exalt or we want to befriend the elite, the good-looking, those that we think will help us get somewhere or benefit our lives. And we tend to separate ourselves or look down on those who are in a low spot in life. Those who are in prison or those who are homeless or those who smell bad or look different or don't dress like we do. We look down at them. We avoid them. We don't look to get close to them. Why do we do this? Because our selfishness is why. Our sin. We don't want to be bothered by their drama, by their needs. We want to excel. We don't want to be put out by their smell. We don't want others to perceive us differently, that we're somehow being lowered by spending time with them. But we have to see that this is sin, this kind of judgment. To devalue another person made in the image of God. And this is what James says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts, wicked thoughts, sinful thoughts? Instead, no, we are to love those who are different than us. God's love at work in us gives us a heart and an affection for those who are different. They look different. They, they do life different. They even pursue life in a different way. Hear it again. God's love is so full in us who belong to Him that I don't need people to meet my standard or preference to then show them love. That stipulation was one of my flesh. God's love in me goes at that very differently. God's love at work in the redeemed gives us a radical and selfless love for others that are different than us. Now, does this mean you have to be best friends and buddies and with the people who are different than you? No, I don't think it means that. But it does mean you need to love them rightly and truly. It means we are to love them sacrificially. This was the rebuke that Paul gave to Peter, two leaders in the early church. Galatians 2, 11-14, Peter was showing partiality or favoritism 
towards Jewish leaders who had come near and was distancing himself from the Gentiles who were also brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul said to Peter that he was out of step with the gospel in this practice. He was not showing gospel love that he had been shown by God. He was not loving them sacrificially, especially those who were culturally different than he was. Let me ask you, just make it personal. In what ways are you guilty of withholding sacrificial love for those who are different than you? Or being partial in a way that the Word says, in Christ we are not to be, to give extra care or love or attention to people who are like you. This is partiality. It's sinful. The beauty of what God's doing in the gospel is to take a very diverse community and make us one. It's the beautiful testimony of our church now and ongoingly, God willing, through many generations to come. In what ways does God's love for you need to go to work in loving these who are different than you better? Truly. Church, God's love at work in us means a sacrificial love for those who are different than us. May it be so in our lives and testimony in the days that God gives us under the sun. Church, we're also to love those who are dead in sin. We're to love those who are our enemies. We're to love those who are different than us. We are to love those who are dead in sin. Another way the sacrificial love of God goes to work in us is for those who are lost, guilty in their sin, separated from God. They're not Christians. Those who are actively and ongoingly God's enemies They remain unrepentant in their sin. They don't live by faith. They don't honor God with their lives. Just as we are to love our enemy, those who are actively persecuting us, we are to love God's enemies because they're God's enemies because they remain unrepentant in their sin, but because God has also called us to love them, to be a light in the darkness among them. We see Jesus do this very well in his days of ministry. A couple quick examples to share with you. Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, to hear him. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees, the religious elite of that day, shows up to this hillside. They see Jesus interacting and breaking bread with secular people unrepentant, sinful people. And they're upset. Why? Because the Pharisees lacked the sacrificial love of God, which causes them to love those who are still dead in sin. Their self-righteousness is brewing. Jesus goes on in that setting, with the Pharisees present and these secular sinners present, to tell three parables. One of them you know most famously is the parable of the prodigal son. All three of those parables are essentially working to serve the same purpose, and that is for Jesus to declare that just as much as these lost secular sinners need Him to be their Savior, 
so also do the self-righteous do-gooders need him to be their savior. They're both lost and in desperate need of a savior, just living two different lost lives. Let me ask you, beloved, have you found a way to close your circle so tight that you don't have ways to show real love to those who are in sin or lost? You're only spending time with the redeemed in a way that essentially your light is under a basket. Are you rationalizing your thinking in the same way the Pharisees did? Do you, if you're honest, think that many of these people are not worthy of your time? That maybe you're better than them? We see the Pharisees do this again in Luke 19. Jesus tells Zacchaeus that he will go to his house. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was not a popular guy in the community, scamming people out of their money, getting rich, manipulating others. He was a sinner in need of salvation. The Pharisees see Jesus go to his house and say in Luke 19.7, when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Church, while we need to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, that is our intimate, close friendships, relationships, that's scriptural, there's lots of good reason for that, we do need to spend time with and find ways to sacrificially love the lost in our lives and around us. What does that look like for you? Right? Yes, there's an affection towards your neighbors who love Jesus. That's good and right. But is there also a dismissal of those who hate him? What does it look like to be intentional to love the lost in our community? As a pastor, the table is very set for me have every excuse for why I spend all my time with the church. For it is the high call of my life to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to study and pray, to lead the saints. It is a major part of my life in a unique way. But I watched many pastors who come before me and others who I've observed be guilty of never, ever having time with lost people outside the church. And I felt convicted. Why? Because the call to be a witness to lost people was on my life, too. I don't get a rain check from this. And so very intentionally, I begin to pray, Lord, how might I be intentional to get time in my context of weekly schedule with people who are lost and dead in sin? Again, I don't, I don't have a secular workplace, right? I come here, I study, I, I'm with you, the church. And so for a season, that was a softball league that we started with some of the men. 
uh, a team we put together. But we didn't go play in the Christian League. We went and played in the City League where cases of beer would show up and the guys would get smashed and stumble around. We looked to be a witness to them, to love them, to pray, to build a relationship where we could be a light. Right? Eventually, for me, that became an intentional pursuit of the motorcycle club that I'm now a member of for the last 10 years, Jeremy, Jason included, to be a light to people in our community who are in the margins, who are very lost and dead in sin. And so what I've come to find is when prominent people in our community, or even just whoever, see a pastor of one of our historic churches at Hell's Angels Clubhouse or the Devil's Disciples or these other outlaw motorcycle clubs and people very dead and lost in sin. Why would he spend time there? Why on the weekend would he be with those guys instead of with his family or doing more with us, the church? That's the very design of our club's ministry is to be a light of the gospel to people in the margins in that particular community and I've been blessed in 10 years to see men come out of a life that in all means you don't walk out of and now love Jesus and serve him. God's at work. Yeah, it's slow and it's hard and painful at times, but what does that look like to be intentional? People say, how do you do that? How do you do all this stuff? Because I have a wife who also believes in this kind of investment of our family of even all she gives up of me, that's still a part of my journey. So there's an intentionality to it. And I just share that as an example to say, a lot of times we can come up with excuses for why we don't have places to minister to the lost. And I want to help lead you well, even by example at times. What does that look like for you? I'm definitely not saying you need to join a motorcycle club. But what does it look like for you? What are those ways that you're in the community or befriending people who are lost to be a light of the gospel, to be an influence on their lives? How can you be intentional to do this better with your days under the sun? And can I say, if that ministry is just humanitarian, it's just to do a servant work, but there's never a gospel testimony, you're no different than a heathen who's generous with their time to serve in a different capacity in the community. Church, you must be willing to risk the gospel testimony in those settings, so much so that you might get fired from doing it, or kicked up, or when I'm talking to the brothers in our club, that in any moment we could get rolled up, literally, and be done. Because all of a sudden now that gospel testimony stands in great opposition to where these guys are at. But if not the light of the gospel at work, then what are we doing? So we're to love those who are our enemies, those who are different than us, those who are dead in sin and need the light of the gospel. We also, church, are to love those who are in need. Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. God's love at work through us, the church, means a love for others to have empathy for people and meeting them where they're at. You might say it's easy to rejoice with others. It's the weeping with them that's hard. Well, sometimes. 
I actually think sometimes it's easier to be heartbroken and to get down in the dirt with someone who's broken and to cry and pray for them. I actually think sometimes that's harder than coming alongside those who are successful. Right? Did you hear me mention earlier the poor, the orphan, the widow, and I said the wealthy? Why? Why would we? Why are the wealthy in need? Because just as Scripture teaches, in some ways they're more lost and farther away from what they need than anyone else. Their need is the gospel. Their need is life in Christ. The lie of a modern world is that they have all that they need. They do not. Outside of Christ, they have hell. They have punishment. They're in great need. And yet we can struggle sometimes to circle up and be near the successful. Why? Because our pride says, oh, right? I, don't, I don't feel very much empathy towards you. If anything, what I'm struggling with is pride and jealousy. When God has given someone wealth or talent or someone provision, sometimes it can be difficult to authentically rejoice with them because our selfish hearts create a petty jealousy where we kind of go, well, what about me? What about me? Right? Make that personal for you today. How have you had resentment towards someone or a certain kind of group of people because you see them experience victory or success or relief when you have not in those areas. Maybe you were on the same team or in the same school or at the same job. They went on to succeed and you were unjustly fired or demoted or stuck. Do you see your flesh motivating feelings of jealousy and even bitterness affecting then your desire to love them sacrificially? God, God's love at work in us, church, rejoices with others no matter where we stand. What about the other side of the coin? It's common to have a self-righteous response to people who are hurting or struggling or down in the dumps. We can quickly look down at them. Oh, well, you deserve that. What did you do to get where you're at? And and so we kind of keep our empathy to ourselves. They don't deserve to have me join them or cry with them. They did something to earn whatever they're going through. And this can play out in subtle ways in our lives. For example, when you see a homeless person, or maybe a woman whose attire and location means maybe she's working When you see a group of people, maybe from another religion, or ethnically different than you, you see people who are claiming other political priorities than you. I think the key to help us with this church is Paul's words in Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's only by grace am I saved. I did nothing to earn that, to deserve that. 
When you look at someone who's grossly lost in sin, you have to remember that in many ways you are of one small but game-changing fraction of a difference between that person. Not by anything that you've done different than them, but only because of the fact that you have received grace and they have not. not think of ourselves more highly than we ought but to have sober judgment we're desperate for Jesus to be full in him so I can have sober judgment over those that are around me so I don't elevate myself to a position where I think that I'm better than they are Christians see how that affects your sacrificial love for others Notice Jesus' point in telling the story of the Good Samaritan that as the Samaritan journeyed, he came to where this beaten man was. He saw him and he had compassion. Compassion is sacrificial love and concern for the sufferings or hardships of another. James said it well in James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To really be in the world but not of it. To go and get dirty and get low and care for people in their tough spots. To give up, to have sacrifice, intentional living that's different. It's Christ at work in us. Well, James gives us two kinds of people in our society and to visit and care for here, orphans and widows. It, there's a wider focus of just ministry and care that we, the church, are to have for the helpless, the afflicted, the marginalized. Again and again, Jesus is going to teach his disciples what true followers of him do to sacrificially serve others. The common thread we see again and again in this ministry, sacrificial service for others who are marginalized and afflicted. We care for those that God puts in our path. We care for those that we have an opportunity to impact. Jesus said it. Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Christian, is your life marked by a sacrificial love for others, especially those who are afflicted by the pains of life? Church, our conviction for sound doctrine is critical. Our devotion to making disciples is critical. Our passion for authentic and accountable community here is critical. But all of that falls short if, if we don't get outside of ourselves and have the fruit of the Spirit that causes us to sacrificially love those who are afflicted and downtrodden. Church should be making a difference in the community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. So much so that really having less to do with what we're doing on a horizontal, but more the fact that if we were to remove ourselves, the community would be hurt. (coughs) 
It's one of the loudest ways the church makes its mark on a broken and lost world. The love of God at work in us to love those and serve those who are hurting and marginalized. In this the gospel is bright and mightily at work. Paul said it well in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, I'm a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and knowledge, but I have not, and have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so I ask you this morning, Christian, what part of your regular day or week is devoted to the care of others? to serving those who are not yours, not part of the body, but to show them the love of God. If we are the true church, the bride of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, if we are those who are taking up our cross and dying to ourselves to follow Him, then we will take the humble position of a servant and go low to lift up others then we will truly be invested in regular ministries where people are in need and are afflicted, are marginalized. And so, if you're hearing this, you're like, man, this is true, this is good, I need to do this, but you're just tempted to say, I just got to do better, I got to pull up my bootstraps. No, you, you won't do this on your own. You need to know and bathe in and be captivated by the love of God for you. And so, turn with me to Romans 5. And look with me at this passage. Because we need to never forget that we're called to love our enemies and those different than us and those who are dead in sin and those who are in need. But we're called and we're empowered to do that only because that's what God did for us. Romans 5, 6-11. Hear this, church. While we were still weak, Unable to save ourselves. We were the weak ones. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly. We weren't doing anything by faith. We were, doing, we were not doing anything for the glory of God. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows His love for us. That's you and I, church. In that while we were still sinners, still active, people disobeying God's commands, people betraying His glory to pursue our own, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, not worthy, not deserving, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, not just sinners, we were God's enemies. The Bible is very clear that those who are outside of new birth and life in Christ, we hate God. We don't do anything for the glory of God. Even the best things we do are wicked because they're not unto His glory. We're glory thieves. Christian, 
Realize and never forget that before Christ saved you, you were not one of the nice neighbors to God. You were the neighbor actively trying to burn his house down. You were trying to take what was his and make it yours. That's the neighbor you were, according to Scripture. You were his enemy in how you acted in sin and selfishness. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have received reconciliation. Amen? Wow, that's the good news of God's amazing love set on an undeserving people. And so, if today you are here And maybe you've spent a lot of days in churches. Maybe you've studied the Word of God and you know a lot about it. All that is for naught if you are not converted. If He doesn't give you new birth. What does that mean? That means He shows you the depth of your sin. And you see it as gross before His holy standard. And you confess it to Him. I'm a sinner. I have done nothing to deserve your grace, your love. But I see that God the Son died in my place. And I trust my life to Him. You know, in that you're not just saying I believe about Him. The demons believe about Him. And they're damned forever. No, no. Your belief is a trust to Him. You're no longer the Lord of your life. He is. You died yourself. You belong to Him. That's salvation. He saves you out of your deadly doing to belong to Him, to serve Him, to live for Him, to grow in Him. If that's you, and God's doing that in you today, then repent and believe and be saved. Share that with one of us so we can celebrate new life in Christ, greatest moment of your life, and then help you grow in the infancy of that faith. Again, I don't care how long you've been in church. For some, that's been people who've been in church for decades. And finally, God saves them. Praise God. God's love set on an undeserving people. And then when we belong to Him, when we're saved, what does that love look like as it goes to work through us for the others in our lives? Well, Sadly, for many modern churches, that has just become a lot of programming. And so modern churches, like ours, like many I was a part of for many years, were guilty of putting in these like systems. And so we would have a feed the homeless day or a pick up trash day. And then the church would, would get together, we'd do this occasional effort, and then we would check the box like, this is me loving on my community. This is me loving on the marginalized. But when we study Scripture, what we see is something different than that. We see something more organic. We see something that's more personal. And the key is it's ongoing. It's not, I do this twice a year and then I've fulfilled my duty. No, the different passions and gift mixes and and the different uh, resources God entrusts to the diversity of the body goes to work in diverse ways. And so we don't flatten it to say that everyone's got to do this kind of ministry. And so that reformation has been happening in us as a church. 
We purposely deprogrammed some of those more corporate efforts that made the church feel like, oh, I'm doing these things on this occasional basis, so I'm good. No, we saw the need in our body for that itch to come back. What am I doing? So it's not just about me to break out of my comfortable circle, to love the marginalized, and to use my gifts for people in the community. And so our job as shepherds is to teach the Word of God fully and rightly, to train you to do the work of the ministry, to partner with you as parents in discipling your kids, the truths of the Lord, and to help you mature in Christ so that the love of God and the testimony of the gospel overflows through you in all the diverse ways it goes to work. And so what is Disciples Church doing to be an impact on the community? What are, what are the things that you do as a church? We don't have, like, here's the three things we do corporately. We don't even have that list. Why? Because it's a big old answer. And it's really different for all of you. We love others out of the overflow of the love of the Lord at work in us. And we look for ways to be that light and to be accountable and to be sanctified. And so our, our commitments are shifting and changing and maturing. How is the gospel mobilizing us? How is the love of God manifest in our lives? Here's some examples. For some of our families, this means a sacrificial commitment to foster care. The kids didn't do anything wrong. Their parents messed up. The kids need love. They need the gospel. So we bring them into our homes and we love them. Like our own. And does that make things hard? Yeah. Does, does that make, make the house a little less clean and bring some stuff into the house that's problematic? Yeah. But that's why it's sacrificial. And for some, we're adopting those kids and they're God's ordaining they become our own. For others, there's an investment of time and energy into tutoring kids or even adults. Volunteering to coach kids' sports programs so you can have an impact on a new generation or families and get to know those families. And not only just have a good coaching session, but, but actually then have them to your house and witness the gospel to them and get to walk with them. Volunteering in community nursing homes to go build relationships and share the gospel with people. Serve them. Do the things that people don't want to do. Volunteering time to counsel others. Hours to counseling. To, um, things like the Motorcycle Club ministry that some of us are involved in. Those, those are examples. Some, some have an investment of time and love for people in prison or juvenile detention facilities or the VA. Many of you are committed to supporting or participating in solid parachurch organizations like the one we're highlighting today as an option, Compassion International. Some are sewing blankets and pillowcases that the orphans who go through Jameson Center get to keep their stuff. Putting on events at the Homeless Center to love those families, those homeless moms and their kids that share the gospel with them. Ministering, some are ministering to battered women. Some are providing space for people to live in times of hardship, transition to be a light of the gospel. And the list goes on and on. 
My question to you this morning is, in what ways do you need to repent of making your days and your weeks about you? In what ways do you need to be more ready to love others, those that God's put in your path, those who are in need? In what ways will the love of God move and mobilize through you to those God has put around you? To be intentional with your schedule and your time and your resources to be a light of the gospel. If your holdup in doing this is money or, or funding, then you don't have that problem. Why? Because we created a fund here at Disciples Church. It's called the Love Others Fund. Genius name, huh? Its intention is specifically to fund efforts to bring the gospel into the community. It has money in it to the tunes of tens of thousands of dollars that we've built up and made ready. And it's available to you to go to work, to serve, and bring, bring the gospel. There's some stipulations I'll remind you of quickly. You can't request Love Others Fund money as an individual. We want to mobilize the body and we want the kinds of money we're giving out to have some accountability to it. So you have to have at least three covenant members a part of that effort in applying for that. And we vet that. What is it? And part of what we're looking for there is that you're not just showing a tangible service, not just a humanitarian kind of touch, but the gospel is connected to it. How is the gospel going to be shared in this effort? Because if not, then it doesn't look any different than secular humanitarian service. We don't love them with the very thing they need the most. And so we want to help vet that. How are you going to be bold to share the gospel? And not, not be afraid to go there. Well, we might lose our opportunity. Okay, so let's lose it. Let's go and share and then lose it if we have to instead of not doing it. So I encourage you to be prayerful about that. Do you need help with that? We're here to help you partner with that in that way. And then uniquely today, again, it's just an aspect of what we're talking about is Compassion Sunday, Compassion International what might it look like to consider sponsoring a child who lives in an impoverished part of the world? Again, not just for the sake of humanitarian service, but for the sake of being the light of the gospel to this child. And can I just tell you, don't do this if you're not going to see it through. Don't do it because you're moved today, but you're going to find something else to spend your $38 on three months from now. No, do it because you're serious about getting to know this child and investing. You're going to write letters. And you're going to pray for them as a family. Get your kids involved. Are your kids ready? You know, are they ready to have a hand in this? Are they ready to be committed to that? That might be their job to pull the child's picture off the fridge for dinner time, and we spend time praying over them every day. What, to write letters, to be invested. What does that look like? It's just a way. It's just, it's just one way. In the end, it's our prayer that Disciples Church is known for the love of God at work in our lives as we are actively and faithfully and sacrificially loving our enemies and those in need and those who are different than us and those who are lost in sin. What a joy it is to be a part of His kingdom, to know His love, 
that it would go to work in this way. I want to pray. We're going to sing together to worship our God corporately. Marilyn, I'm going to come back up and give you some specific instructions. So I ask you don't leave until we can tell you what's up. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this time, this work that you're doing in us to appoint today, to appoint us to be here, to, to move mightily, to not leave us where we're at, to, 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 to shake it up, to, to bring conviction, to bring excitement and mobilization that we would serve you with these days you've given us. Make much of the gospel that's changing lives to worship you in these things. Lord, we're at war with our flesh, and there's so many ways that our flesh gets in the way. We want to continue to be sanctified and, and continue to mature in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit would go to work. And accountability with the brothers and sisters in Christ would go to work. Your Word would instruct us and move us and lead us. And So do that work in us now. Hear us as the hearts of the redeemed well up with worship for you. The good news of the gospel at work in our lives. You are to be praised. Be worshipped not just by our singing, but by our lives lived in these hours and days you have given us for your glory and others' good. In Jesus' name we pray.